Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I'm joined today once again by esteemed guest co-host Grant. This is our holiday special, and I'm so thrilled that Grant agreed to be with us because for this holiday special, we are going to tackle another oratorio, and this time it's one by Hector Berlioz. Grant, what oratorio are we going to be listening to today? Well, first I want to say thank you so much for having me. I was mostly enticed because I was told that I'd get hot cider if I showed up, but it's, it's wonderful to be here. Uh, Bribes we'll... are, are always part of my my arsenal, yes. <laughs> it's, it's good. Today we'll be listening to Hector Berlioz's The Infancy of Christ, and no, I'm not going to try and pronounce that in French. Well, it actually translates to the childhood of Christ, l'enfance du Christ. Well, there you go. So it's not really a birth story. It's not a Christmas story per se, but it is It is a work that premiered in December. It, it premiered in 1854 in Paris. And it, when it gets played, it, it is played during the Christmas season because it, it is a work that tells a story about an important period of Christ's life. Yeah, and it's sort of an interesting thing because it is not a Christmas story in some technical sense, but it is very much a Christmas story and then it's set immediately after the Christmas story with which we're all familiar. And it talks about some of the aftermath and indeed some of the parts of the narrative that let's say, don't usually make it into the children's Bible version. Oh, well, that's intriguing. What do you mean by that? I mean that uh, we we like to stick with the happy, cute baby, but a part of the story is that Jesus is seen by the people in power as dangerous, even before he has done anything. He certainly is regarded as dangerous once he's actually teaching and preaching and healing, but in this story, he's dangerous simply for existing. Anyway, no spoilers, of course. <laughs> you know our motto on Opera for Everyone, there's no such thing as spoilers. <laughs> we, we're here to tell you what's going on so you can really focus and enjoy the art of the, of the story that's being told with the music and the performance. So. Yeah, but, but the original version of this only came out like a little less than 2,000 years ago, so lots of people haven't had a chance to read it yet, so we, just, we don't want to like <laughs> give anything away here. <laughs> that's what we do here. We give it away. <laughs> we tell you what's going on. <laughs> well, it's it's um, this is an oratorio, and it's it's kind of interesting if you look at Berlioz's work, and and he's a he's an interesting, complicated composer, Berlioz. In fact, one of the works that I did not too long ago with Kathleen, when we did three of the Faust stories, La Damnation de Faust which is pretty much performed these days as an opera, it's called, in its day when it was first produced, it's called an oratorio or an opera de concert or dramatic legend in four parts. So he didn't always fit the mold with his compositions, with his works. And he didn't, he didn't do things by the book. He was not a traditionally trained musician. Just a little background on Berlioz the, the man, Berlioz the musician. His, his father was 
uh, a man of medicine, an agnostic. His mother was Roman Catholic, made sure he got baptized Roman Catholic and was raised in the church, though he, he honestly was a little bit more of an agnostic like his father, though you see his religious training come out in a lot of what we're going to be listening to today. But as far as his musical training goes, it's not the traditional background of a lot of the other composers that feature on opera for everyone. Guitar was more of a comfortable instrument, for example, for him than piano. His father wanted him to go into medicine, in fact, sent him to Paris for training in medicine. And this story is called into question, but in, in his memoirs, he says when he first saw a cadaver being dissected, he jumped out a window and said he's never going to do it again. And, and he spent his time trying to learn at the conservatoire and, and making a pest of himself, more or less, because he wasn't officially a student. Little by little, though, his musical talent made itself apparent, and he studied, and even though he annoyed the traditional forces there, he, he did ultimately compose quite successfully and actually won the Prix de Rome, that very prestigious award which gave him at state expense time to, to study and learn compositional techniques from the Italians. And there's way too much story uh, there <laughs> for me to go into now, but Symphonie Fantastique and his romantic expression with his great love story are all part of his background there. But we're going to fast forward to the 1850s and talk about this, this oratorio that he puts together, L'Enfance du Christ. So Grant, as far as this oratorio's structure is concerned, how many parts does this oratorio have? This oratorio is in three parts, and they all reflect on one another. I read a wonderful piece that referred to them as being a triptych, referring to the kind of religious art with three panels that all form one another. And the central panel, the middle section, was written first by Berlioz, and the other pieces were written around it to give it shape and form. Well, We'll treat them in order of presentation. So we'll have a lot to say about the the central panel after we talk about the first piece. (laughs) So Grant, I know we don't have spoilers. And so that means because we don't have spoilers, (laughs) it will be very helpful for you to just give us an overview of this whole story, the whole entire triptych, panel one, panel two, and panel three, before we begin to look at each panel individually in this oratorio. All right, so I think the the right place to start is by backing up and reviewing the Christmas story proper, which is largely in the background of this. At this point in the Christmas story, Jesus' mother, Mary, and her fiancé, Joseph, have found themselves in Bethlehem. Jesus is born in a manger. He's born in a stable. And there are these miraculous things that happen. Wise men come and visit. Shepherds are sung to by angels. And all over, there is a sense that the world is changing. And so when this oratorio opens, Jesus has already been born. And is currently in the manger. Just for clarification, could you explain to us what a manger is? A manger is just a a feeding trough, a place where hay is stored for animals. So Jesus is born in the most humble of places. His parents are poor and they are powerless, but they are descendants of the royal line of David. 
And that becomes important very quickly because there is already a king in the land, and his name is Herod. And Herod is a just a genuinely nasty historical character. Herod came to power in Judea. He was able to do this with the help of the Romans and by marrying into the old royal family, the, the Maccabees, the heroes in the Hanukkah story, the people who had saved them from foreign oppression. Anyway, he marries into this family, and once he uses their connections to secure his own power, he murders his own wife and the children. Oh, no. Yeah, <laughs> It's uh, It was famously said by Augustus, the first emperor of the Roman Empire, that he would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. The joke being that Herod as a Jew wouldn't have eaten pig, but he would very much have killed his own sons. And this was, and this was just the kind of person he was. He was an extremely ruthless, extremely paranoid ruler who also had a great deal of power and in certain ways success but was reviled for the level of cruelty and uh, oppression that was associated with his reign. So this is the character that we open the oratorio on, the paranoid king Herod. Not introduced at first in person, but at first by the narrator who sets the scene, telling us that we are seeing Herod in the same time that Jesus lays in the manger in the stable in Bethlehem, and then by the Roman guards, the Roman occupiers who are helping Herod and are allied with him, but who also think him a fool, and a dangerous fool at that. So in the prologue, the narrator sets this scene and lets us know that this is the world into which we are entering. You're listening to Opera for Everyone, and today's show is Hector Berlioz's L'Enfance du Christ, and that was the prologue. And immediately following the prologue, we have the Nocturnal March, and we're going to listen to a little bit of the orchestral march, gorgeous music, 
Towards the end of the march, that is when the guards will talk about the ridiculous tyrant Herod. But I want you to enjoy some of this orchestral music first.
This is Opera for Everyone, and we're listening to Hector Berlioz's L'Enfance du Christ, and that's the end of the first scene of the oratorio. So in the second scene, we are in the interior of Herod's palace, and we are with the man himself, Herod. And Herod has had a bad dream, a vision Mm. that he will be dethroned by a child. A king dethroned by a child. Yeah, which we know that Herod is worried about because, you know, it wasn't the first time he'd been worried about children dethroning him. Mm. And the funny thing is, in the actual biblical text, Herod does not have this dream. In fact, Herod doesn't have any dreams, which is funny because in the Matthew Christmas story, basically everybody's having dreams. The Magi, the wise men, they have a dream. Joseph has two dreams. And then there is Herod. And... In this story, he too has a dream, but unlike the dreams that other people have had, which have led them to make the right choices or given them insight, well, his dream is driving him to madness. And bad choices? And very, very bad choices. Well, Herod's not having a good night. He's had a bad dream. He's very worried and and it's just going to get worse. He's going to continue on and and this next piece that we're going to listen to a little bit Grant it may be called Au Misère des Rois, Oh, the Miseries of Kingship. But when I read the words, the text, and by the way, the text of this entire work, he wrote the text to this oratorio, as he did for a number of his other works. I don't like to call this the Miseries of Kingship. I really think we should just call it Herod's Pity Party. Here is this man with all, all this power, all these things he can do, and all he can do is focus on his careworn brow, all the things he has to worry about, all the troubles that fall on his shoulders. Poor Herod. And the funny thing is, there are real stresses to leadership. There are real stresses to being a ruler, which for a decent human being have to do with worrying about the welfare of the people you're in charge of. Yes. That's completely not what Herod's worried about. He is simultaneously complaining that he's king and terrified that he might not be king. Yeah. He's, um, it's really hard to work up sympathy for Herod. And yet Berlioz is kind of trying in a fascinating way. There is something tragic 
about this this character who's ultimately going to do the most unimaginable, most unforgivable thing before all is said and done. But he's trying to get in his head. And even if the paranoia and the terror is self-inflicted, it's still real. There's a reason why people who seize kingship often end up so very paranoid. Yeah, it's true. Even, even the worst abusers of power believe they do it for a good reason. Well, I think we can listen to a little bit of Herod singing about the miseries of kingship. This is Opera for Everyone, and we've we've just really gotten to know King Herod in Hector Berlioz's L'Enfance du Christ. This is King Herod who's had this, this terrible dream, this premonition that he's going to be overthrown by a child, and 
his deep concern, his, his fear and his worries about the terrible burden of kingship. And in the midst of all this self-concern, he's interrupted as someone comes into his room and he draws his sword and it's one of his own guards and it, it takes him a moment to come to himself. This is an oratorio, by the way, but my goodness, you can imagine this being completely staged as a dramatic performance, can't you? There's a huge amount of physicality that can be acted out, even in the context of an oratorio. Pat, have we talked about what an oratorio is? No, I and I do apologize, because we have used that word several times already. So an oratorio does tell a story, as an opera tells a story, but an oratorio is not as fully staged a presentation of that story as an opera would be. It doesn't have the the sets and the costumes typically that an opera would have. More often than not, but not exclusively, an oratorio would be on a, a sacred subject, a, a biblical subject. Oftentimes, but definitely not always or exclusively, it can be staged in a church. It's certainly less expensive to stage because it doesn't need those costumes and the sets and the lighting. And how does this interact with, like, Zoom plays, where people do plays on Zoom? Because that sounds like it's kind of the same thing. That's an interesting question. I don't know that it interacts, because the oratorios I'm familiar with way predate the Zoom era. (laughs) Yeah, but people are still putting out oratorios. Do you think that there are people who are putting out Zoom oratorios these days? That's an... Do you you know of them? No, I just... While you were describing all that, I'm thinking, wow, that's, that's kind of perfect for our socially distanced age. That's a really good question. I've certainly seen a lot of productions, uh, dramatic and musical, and musically dramatic, on uh, Zoom productions these days, but I'm going to have to give that one some thought. My brother used to date a girl who was musically dramatic, more trouble than she was worth, but a ton of fun at parties. (laughs) Okay, I I think we've strayed from our story. (laughs) I think we need to get back. The guard has told Herod that the soothsayers have arrived, the Jewish soothsayers have arrived, and they've assembled on your orders. But I have a question for you, Grant. Would it be common at this time period for Herod to have summoned Jewish soothsayers? All right, so this really depends on the translation of the word, the French word divine. And I confess I don't know enough French to know this. What I will say is that The Bible, and therefore the Jewish religion, and therefore Herod's milieu, makes a pretty significant distinction between prophecy and divination, or fortune-telling, or soothsaying, or whatever you want to call that. And we think the divine here is connected to divination. Uh, Yeah, it certainly seems to be. In the context of this play, it's it's presented as being this almost, I mean, you know, it's Berlioz, right? It's presented as this almost Faustian witchcrafty thing. Now, one of the big historical questions about Herod, that is still to some extent an open question, is exactly how Jewish Herod was. I mean, he was certainly Jewish in the sense that mattered most to people, that he was, he was, he was Jewish, he came from the country. He was of the the ethnicity, he was of the nationality. But Judaism is also this set of laws and strictures and religious beliefs. And this has gotten 
litigated and relitigated a million times in the archaeological record with people arguing about whether or not Herod did or didn't have items present indicating that he was or wasn't keeping, for lack of a better term, kosher. Uh, <laughs> and so, like, would Herod have had soothsayers? It's kind of an open question. There are certainly some people who would argue that Herod was a perfectly ordinary, observant Jewish man, and he, at the very least, made nods to being so, because it would certainly have put the people in a great level of outrage if he had been openly flaunting the laws. He was also not necessarily the kind of person who was driven by an extraordinary level of personal devotion. No, but he was very driven by disturbing dreams and holding on to the kingship. Well, yes, I mean, the disturbing dreams, again, is not a part of the original story. Mm. Though it is very much a part of the story here. So Herod, you know, did he have diviners or did he have prophets? Who knows? The original biblical story certainly seems to imply that the people he summons are not diviners. They're not people who are reading goat entrails. They're not astrologers. They're people who are expert in the biblical texts. And he's mostly concerned in the biblical text about the coming Messiah. And so he summons people who are experts in the prophecies and they weigh in for him on the questions of what to make of the Jewish messianic prophecies. Mm. And again, like that, that's a funny thing because it leaves him in technical compliance, right? He's not summoning diviners. He's summoning experts in the Bible. But it also indicates that he's actively trying to go against God's plan. He's trying to thwart the coming of the Messiah. So, <laughs> Well, buckle your seatbelt. It's going to get worse. <laughs> <laughs> in, indeed, indeed. But in this, in this play, it's certainly presented as this, this wild kind of frantic sort of sorcery that he's engaging in. And whether or not that's historically authentic to what would have happened in the court of Herod, it certainly evokes the sort of Faustian thing that Herod is trying or will have try to set himself up against God. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you you a couple times have mentioned Faust here because Berlioz's La Damnation de Faust, which was about a decade earlier, its premiere was about a decade earlier, also originally not a full opera, more of a an oratorio type or a dramatic legend presented not having to be fully staged but Berlioz couldn't fully know this he had he had hints and we'll talk about this more when we talk about the middle section of this work he had hints that this was going to be a more successful piece but he was bitterly disappointed by the Parisian reception of La Damnation de Faust. So it's it's an interesting thing to work in Faustian bits into this into this presentation. And I don't necessarily think he's like trying to work in an explicit reference of any kind. I think mm. it's just that he's he's fascinated by this theme of going up against that which is immovable and indeed should not be moved. Yeah. Right. Powerful forces. Well, Back to Herod's palace. The soothsayers, the diviners have been announced, and Herod invites them in. And the soothsayers are very direct with Herod and complimentary to him. They call him a wise and bountiful prince. They want to serve him, calling themselves devoted to him. And they ask what he wants from them.
Je de vous savoir si cette terreur qui m'accable est fondée et comment ce danger redoutable peut-être détourné. Listening to Opera for Everyone, and today's show is L'Enfance du Christ by Hector Berlioz. And we've just heard Herod interacting with the diviners, the soothsayers. And that instrumental piece we heard was, well, what was that, Grant? So we were talking about what, what are these people? Who are these soothsayers? Are they, are they prophets? Are they experts in the law? Are they diviners? And, and the answer is that they are performing some manner of sorcery or necromancy. They say that they will consult the spirits, and they perform a dance that is referred to as Kabbalistic. What does that mean? And then, by the way, that's in in the, in the French as well. And so Kabbalah is is a it's a Jewish mystical practice, but in English, Kabbal and in, in French, right, Kabbal have these these senses of, of uh, secrecy and bad things done behind closed doors. There's definitely no latent anti-Semitism lurking in this term. You're being facetious there. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, uh, and and that's a thing that we should recognize with this. Or like Salome, another opera we did on Opera for Everyone, episode number... That would be episode number 72. Ah, it was on the tip of my tongue. So, so in <laughs> in a lot of these plays, there is this 
this kind of interesting sense of the Bible is Middle Eastern. It is, as far as these people are concerned, Asian. It is the the East and the strange, bizarre land and to the writers of these things. Judaism is not well understood, the East is not well understood, and so there is this kind of fascination with it as a place that is ancient and magical and perhaps barbaric, and, and all of this gets mixed together when they're telling these stories. And it's, it's interesting to see how it gets used, because of course, Jesus is as Eastern, in fact, in many ways more Eastern than Herod is, but, but they, they, this all gets mixed in where this sort of like, hostile kind of strange, mysterious, dangerous power is understood as, as having to do in some way with, with the Jews or with the East or, or what have you. Well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have a different feel and flavor to someone who might identify agnostic, but was raised in the context of Roman Catholicism, as Berlioz was. Berlioz is the composer of the music. He's also the writer of the text of this entire work. And for him, the story of Jesus and Joseph and Mary is all very familiar from childhood. And the role of Herod and the Jews is, is quite different in, in his growing up and, and also in his social milieu. And, and I think that's what you're getting at. Yeah. And so to treat it charitably on behalf of Berlioz, this is pagan is what it is. It's an invocation of the spirits. It's against the strictures of his own religion, of Herod's religion, and certainly of the religions of all the characters we uh, we encounter here. And yet they're invoking what the soothsayers refer to as dark spirits. And just to continue on with your comment about Herod, and also some of the comments you made when we discussed the Zalame opera, these kings are not, in fact, true representatives of Judaism. They may identify with that faith for, uh, for purposes of the Roman government, but, but they're more... There's a reason why when the Jewish revolts kick up, you know, nobody's concerned with the Herodians. No one cares. The seriously religious people were quite hostile, latently or quite, in so many cases, quite openly to Herod and what his people represented, which is to say, capitulation of Judea to pagan empire. And they had seen this again and again, and it, it didn't sit well with them. No, because they, in a sense, they sold their people out for power within the Roman empire structure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, there's a lot of interesting things to be said about imperialism and how that interacts. But for right now, What's important is that the soothsayers, again, like very Faust here, the soothsayers <laughs> are making a deal with the devils and they are asking the dark spirits, how can Herod avoid the fate in his dream of overthrow? And the dark spirits say the thing that we know and it's the most horrible possible solution, which is that he's to kill the children. The only way for Herod to avoid being overthrown by a child is to order the slaughter of the newborn boys. Let's 
that that right there that was evil yes Herod bad dude heard it here first or second or third or I mean people have been saying it for 2,000 years but like I think we're on the early side of this <laughs> you know it's interesting he embraces this advice that they give him enthusiastically eh bien eh bien so be it and the way that Berlioz composes the music and the words here, after he says, so be it, as a, as a king would say when he's made a decision, the way the music swells, he gains strength and adds emphasis to his decision to murder all of these children to secure his position of power. And he not only is okay with this murder, he goes on to talk about ignoring the pleas of the mothers and the the cries for pity and mercy and he talks about rivers of blood it's completely chilling and as upsetting as Berlioz wanted it to be yeah and this is one of the shocking episodes in literature history it's a thing that happens from time to time that kings will execute massacres to prevent rivals from rising up. Game of Thrones has a memorable <laughs> sequence where where again it's the it's the massacre of innocence where they they kill mm. a large number of children believed to be a threat to the throne. This is certainly not unheard of, but it's like it's it's what you get with that that Augustus quote about Herod. I'd rather be mm. his his pig than his son. Uh, Augustus isn't saying I'm not going to work with Herod. He's saying, wow, that Herod, he's, he's doing king stuff, but, but man, he's a little crazy about it. Right. In fact, the, one of the lines here that Berlioz has given him, the translation in English reads, I shall be deaf to their wailing, neither beauty, grace, nor age shall weaken my resolve. My fears must be allayed. My fears are what matter. Yeah. And these soothsayers, these diviners, the ones who recommend this action to him in this telling, they completely egg him on and encourage him in every possible way in this action. Because they are, in some sense, servants of the dark spirits. That's the, the idea in Faust, right, is that you become a servant of the dark spirits by leaning into their desires. And it's the idea in, I mean, gosh, it's the idea in, <laughs> in so much of life and literature is that there are bad things that you can partake in because you want what they bring you, money or power or whatever. And they become your masters. And so there's this interesting juxtaposition of him saying, I'm going to do this so that I don't have to fear anymore. And the soothsayers say, yes, do it, do it. And then they have this aside to the spirits where they say, spirits, to fan his fury, redouble his fears. The soothsayers want him to be afraid because the spirits that demand blood are the kind of spirits that feed on fear. And there's a Yoda quote that I'm not going to say here. <laughs> you know, I actually read uh, a commentary on this and they, they talked about the, the trombone fanfares that are in this. And they said it was reminiscent of some of the John Williams score, or, you know, maybe I've gotten the uh, ordering of that wrong, but the, it, it was reminiscent of the John Williams score in the Death Star scene from Star mm. Wars films. So, you know, you're not the first person to think of Star Wars in connection here. And it, a lot of this music to me sounds very cinematic. Again, 
not something we can fairly accuse Berlioz of thinking cinematically, but we think cinematically. And this music, it, it's evocative of story. And certainly that was the goal that Berlioz had. And evocative, not just of story, but of conflict between emotional forces, right? Star Wars in the end of the day is about the conflict of emotional forces. And this is what mm-hmm. is happening here. It's this conflict of, I mean, <laughs> we've mostly just seen the negative side so far, but later on we're going to see the positive emotional forces of love, of coziness, of, of family kindness, of hospitality. And here on the other side, you've got tyranny and depression and its close friends, paranoia and violence. Well, that's a perfect segue, Grant, because after this huge expression of total evil, vengeance, fear, all of these things tied together, this ends, and we've just played the very last bit of it. There's a moment of silence, and we're still in the first section, but we're going to get to scene five of this first section, and we're at a stable in Bethlehem, and it's a beautiful duet with Mary and Joseph, and they're just enjoying being parents with their young son.
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, and this is L'Enfance du Christ, The Childhood of Christ by Hector Verlios. And we've just heard for the first time from Mary and Joseph. Quite a contrast, Grant, don't you think? From uh, the rantings of Herod and those who would egg him on to terrible deeds. Yeah, it's a nice change of pace. Indeed, and this is a sweet, sweet beyond words. They are aware that their son is special. They ask God's blessing on their son, and they're delighting in the simplest of pleasures. The tender grass, the bleating of the lambs, the flowers. They are a happy family. And pretty soon, there's going to be a little change in the scene. Because a whole choir of angels is going to appear, and the choir of angels is going to have a message for Mary and Joseph. The choir of angels warns Mary and Joseph that they must flee towards Egypt to escape, because they are in their happy, idyllic love with their family, but the darkness is coming for them. And it's interesting, because we've previously referred to the spirits of darkness, but now Joseph and Mary refer to them as spirits of life and spirits of light. They are in opposition to the cruel spirits of darkness egging Herod on, and instead are the spirits that push towards safety and protection, that try to protect this young family's pure love. Yes, and this is the final piece of the first section of this three-part oratorio. We're going to have the angels interacting with Mary and Joseph, and I think it's a very successful juxtaposition of this spiritual choir of heavenly beings, these angels, and the mortal Joseph and Mary, a very special, happy human couple, but but they will come across as concerned parents trying to do their best in responding to the commands of the angels, and you will have this heavenly choir giving instructions and encouragement and Mary and Joseph being resolute in their intention to obey the commands that they've been given. And they're not easy. It's not an easy command that they're being given. They've, they've already left their home. I mean, Grant, they've already, they've already been uprooted once. And now they're going to become refugees and flee to Egypt, which is, you know, a running theme in the Bible. Egypt is, is close by, but a desert away. And so... There is often a bit of travel back and forth when people are trying to get away from one thing or another. And fleeing to Egypt gets them out of the reach of Herod. Because Egypt is not going to be in the domain that Herod controls. Yeah, it's still part of the Roman Empire, but it's administered separately. And Herod is a client king. He's only got power within his fief. And there's no evidence that he would even know about them. They're simply escaping from the violence that's about to descend on Bethlehem. Right. So Grant, can you give us some sense of what Mary and Joseph would have known about the journey that lays ahead? Because they are willing to be obedient to the commands that these angels are giving. They take seriously the warning of the danger and the peril that awaits if they don't move. It's a long and dangerous journey. It takes them across a large and rugged desert and they are poor. They do not have any way to book a ship. 
even even camels or horses are probably beyond them. And so this is a journey that this young mother and this man and their infant child are going to have to undertake on foot. And it's going to be exceedingly difficult. It's hundreds of miles, very much not safe. It's on the edge of the Roman Empire, on the edge of civilization. There are bandits, and that is the road they need to take to go to safety. And the angels say you must depart this very evening, leave no trace of your going. They agree, but they do ask one thing of this choir of angels. Grant our humble prayer, they say. What do they pray for? For wisdom and strength. They want wisdom and strength, and they will save their son. And the angels say, yes, of course, the powers of heaven will ward off from your path all mortal encounters. And in the final words of this piece, the angels sing, Hosanna, Hosanna. Yes, Hebrew meaning save. They're invoking God to save them. Jesus' name means God saves, and uh, it's the same Hebrew root that's being used as their saying, God save, God save. Esprit de vie, et ce bien
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. It airs on 89.1 KHOL, Sundays, 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time, in beautiful Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud where you can find a treasure trove of past episodes. I'm your host today, Pat Wright. And I'm Grant. Stay tuned. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome back for the second half of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, joined today by Grant. Welcome back, Grant. It's nice to be here. We appreciate your help. Well, before we launch back into our story, there are a few things we like to do at the top of the second hour. And the first of those is we'd like to thank the people who have been involved in the production of this music that we're listening to today. So thank you to the London Symphony Orchestra and the Tenebrae Choir for this recording led by Sir Colin Davis, the conductor, the tenor who serves the role of both narrator and centurion is Jan Buron, Karen Cargill is the mezzo-soprano, Marie, Mary, William Dazalay is the baritone who sings the role of Joseph, Matthew Rose is the bass singing the role of Herod, and Peter Rose is the bass who sings the role of the father and Polydorus. This recording was made in London in December of 2006. Well, Grant, you know the other thing that we tend to do right at the beginning of the second hour? Opera helmet quiz. Okay, so I got questions for you. Oh, okay. All right, so where do we start? Where does where's this begin? Well, we start with the, the narrator setting the scene. We're in Palestine uh, at a time after the baby Jesus has been born. Okay, so a baby Jesus has been born. Is everything swimming, swimmingly? Well, there's no swimming going on, but <laughs> we really focus on Herod during this first section. And by the way, it's the first of three sections in the oratorio that we've treated so far in our first half. And the first section focuses primarily on Herod, King Herod. And what's he like? Not a nice guy. Not a nice guy at all. And he is very focused on his own personal concerns. His main concern is hanging on to the power that he has as king. And where's he getting his advice? He's getting his advice from his dreams and from these people providing divination and these soothsayers and diviners who seem to be encouraging really the worst aspects of his personality. So is that going to work out for him? Well, we haven't seen the end of the story in this telling yet, but no, it's not. Not only does it not work out well for him, ultimately, it's, it's horrific for the people who live under Herod's rule because the fear that gets whipped up in him and in his desperation to hold on to power, he commands that all the children be put to death in his kingdom because he is told that there is a child who has been born who is going to threaten his hold on kingship. And he is determined that this shall not come to pass. And this is how he hopes to prevent this from happening. This is the section about Herod. So we see Herod and then we uh, fade to black? Well, we don't end on Herod's fury. We then transfer to a scene of domestic bliss 
we meet Mary and Joseph in their adoration of their young son, Jesus, and we hear them sing about him and the animals with whom they share an abode at this point in time. And this idyllic picture is interrupted when a host of angels appear, and that is sung by a female choir, and they warn this family of the dangers that are looming because of this order that Herod has given, and they tell them they must immediately leave, and they must depart this area, and they must travel and become refugees and go to Egypt and go across the desert to find safety for their son. They agree to obey and embark on this incredibly dangerous journey, and they ask only for prayers of protection, and the angels agree that those prayers will be answered. And that's the end of the first part. So what happens in the next part? Well, before we talk about exactly what happens, it's worth talking about this second part, this this center of the triptych as you talked about it, because this was the first portion composed. We mentioned in the beginning of our discussion of this piece that this oratorio was not composed part one, part two, part three in order. In fact, part two was composed first pretty much in 1850, and then part three was composed, and then part one. So this middle part has three pieces in it, an overture when the shepherds are gathering, The second piece is the shepherd's farewell, which is exactly what it sounds like it would be. And the third piece is the holy family at rest. On their journey, they find an oasis and they rest there. As the story goes, who knows, because it's reported in Berlioz's own memoirs, which some suspect he might be an unreliable narrator in his own memoirs, but he... Yeah, it happens. He explains that he was at a party and some of his friends were playing cards and he didn't particularly care for that. And a friend of him handed something he could write on and he sketched out this little piece, which turned into the center section of this center section known as the Shepherd's Farewell. So the piece known as The Shepherd's Farewell came into being, interestingly, or at least that's how he described it in the memoirs. He was at a party given by his friend and architect, Joseph Louis Duke, and they were playing cards and Berlioz didn't really care for playing cards. And so his friend gave him some paper and he drew out a little sketch of some music and some orchestrations and he looked at it and thought oh this is this is quite sweet it's rustic it has an old-fashioned charm and it felt to him like it might have something of the holy family in it he developed it into this this piece that he called the shepherd's farewell it was this gathering of the shepherds who had in the famous Christmas story, gathered to adore the infant Jesus, and they were gathering to wish them safe travels and safe journeys as Mary and Joseph went off on their way to save the life of their son. And it's it's really interesting because Berlioz had such a such an up and down career. I had mentioned earlier that Berlioz was really stung by the poor reception that La Damnation de Faust had had. And 
even though something like Symphonie Fantastique, which he had written quite a while earlier in 1830, it had had a fabulous reception, but it's a big orchestra. And La Dame Nation de Faust, 1845, a big orchestra. And his Requiem, which was well-received, 1837, big orchestra. He was known for these giant pieces that were difficult to put on, and they were expensive, and, and even Berlioz had, had spent a lot of money to get these things on. This was, by comparison, a much smaller piece, much more intimate, and it, it wasn't... Bombastic's not exactly the word, but but it's a little closer to it. It's It, it wasn't as huge, and it didn't as demand as many players hmm. to pull it off. And so... Berlioz knew that he had those critics out there. Berlioz, by the way, also earned a certain amount of his own money by being a music critic. So he had certain people who weren't crazy about him because he had said unkind things himself. There's a lot of drama in the backstory. We'll leave, we'll leave that off the program right now. But he earned a certain amount of his money simply by being a conductor. So he had a performance that he was conducting and he put in a piece called The Shepherd's Farewell by a long-lost composer of a hundred years earlier, which, because at this point he was the librarian at La Conservatoire, so he had unearthed Pierre Ducre. Hmm, a certain amount of similarity by this friend Duc, who had <laughs> hosted the party earlier. Pierre Ducre, he had unearthed this composer in this sweet little song called The Shepherd's Farewell, and it received so much praise. People loved it, and it was Berlioz's little trick to see if he could put a Berlioz piece in and have people like it because they simply liked it, mm-hmm. and not have it carry the baggage of his name. Mm. One of the comments I loved best was, Monsieur Berlioz could never write anything as charming as that. <laughs> it's it's always funny, right? Like what what attaching this or that name to something will do to uh, affect people's impression of it, right? Right. And even once people knew that it was Berlioz, they said, "Well, he's changed his style." And Berlioz' retort to that was simply that, "No, he hadn't changed his style. He just changed the subject matter." Mm-hmm. Yes, it was small and sweet because. It was a small and sweet scene. And so this is what was appropriate. And his music was appropriate to whatever scene he was writing. Yeah, and it's this contrast to the wild craziness in the first part, right? Which is written to serve as a counterpoint to what's happening here. Exactly. So let's listen to the shepherd's farewell as the family is setting out in obedience to the angel's command to assure the safety of their young son. Thank you. 
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, and today's program is L'Enfance du Christ by Hector Berlioz. And that was the Shepherd's Farewell from the center section of this oratorio. And the shepherds are seeing Mary and Joseph and young Jesus off to their trip for their exile in Egypt as they try to escape Herod's terrible, terrible command. Yeah, and it's sort of an interesting thing. In the same way that we have in the previous section, the actors of Herod and the Dark Spirits and the uh, various people in Herod's entourage, whether it's the soldiers who think him a fool or the seers who, well, probably also think him a fool, but are certainly goading him on. Here we see the closest thing that, at least at this point, Mary and Joseph have to an entourage, and that is (laughs) these shepherds. And as the Holy Family has to disappear, the shepherds give a blessing. And the blessing asks that Jesus be raised well, that he be safe from danger, that he may one day return, and that he never forget the poor shepherds who cared for him and loved him. Right. Remember us. Remember where you came from. And it's also interesting that among their comments, they refer to the fact that he will be in the land of the idolater. What do they mean by that? They are leaving Judea. Uh, They are going to be a minority where they go in a land where polytheism, paganism, is the prevailing, assumed even, creed. And so they are worried about this on some level from the danger point of view, right? That Jews do not historically always have it well when they live in the land of non-Jews, but also from the point of view of the moral danger. They're concerned about what it is to be raised in this place. Egypt. Yes. Right, because... After all, Mary and Joseph and Jesus are a young Jewish family moving to a place where they won't be surrounded by people like them. And coming up soon, we see that they are right to be worried. There are real concerns that they will be rejected by the people of the land. Right. And the final wish of the shepherds is, may a guardian angel keep you from all danger. And so the final piece of music in this middle section is called The Holy Family at Rest the pilgrims arriving, and this is them finding an oasis, a place of rest. And Grant, is this a biblically founded scene, this oasis that Mary and Joseph find? Nope, it is not. (laughs) Um, But it's one of these well-known things, is imagining the parts of the story that are left implicit. Both the Holy Family at the oasis on the journey to Egypt, and indeed the Massacre of the Innocents, are things that are not described in any detail, in one case described all, in the biblical text, but they have become these objects of fascination for generations of artists, imagining what it would be like to be the family in this case. And the truth is it's the refugee experience. And it is much the same today as it was 200 years ago as it was 2000 years ago. So this is the pretty picture that we get at this moment before the picture is no longer so pretty. So the Holy Family at rest, they found an oasis, and we're going to hear them singing about 
a nice carpet of soft grass that the Lord has given them a place to rest in shade and they found some water and the angels are there to adore the child and the chorus will sing Alleluia.
This is Opera for Everyone, and that was The Holy Family at Rest, the final piece in the middle section of Berlioz's L'Enfance du Christ. And what a lovely piece of music it is. You get the sense that nothing's ever going to go wrong for these people ever again. <laughs> oh, we know better, though. But my goodness, it does capture a moment of beauty and peace. Yes. Well, I... I have to say Berlioz himself was quite happy with his own work here. In fact, he wrote in a letter to his sister, It's really good. It is innocent and touching. Do not laugh. Because he knew his own reputation, and even in a private correspondence to his sister, he confesses that he's known for, for big, large pieces of music. And he tells his sister, Yeah, I, I can do innocent and touching. And he says, it's in the style of illuminations of old missiles. Grant, what's a missile? A missile, that's M-I-S-S-A-L, not M-I-S-S-L-E, mm. is a, a Catholic devotional book containing the texts that are used at Mass. And illumination is the art famously pioneered in the Middle Ages of these beautiful illustrations that would go in books of all kind, but especially sacred books in a time when book production was rare, labor-intensive, and was very much a labor of love, usually by the monks who would undertake writing it in scriptoria. They would spend hours and days and weeks perfecting the appearance of every single page and the illuminations, these drawings that were put in the text were one of the ultimate expressions of this. And there are all sorts of fascinating illuminations out there, by the way. I <laughs> highly recommend that anyone who's interested go and Google snails fighting knights because that's oh, a dear. popular theme in little marginalia in illuminated manuscripts. And no one knows why. Okay. All right. Well, that that definitely counts as a side note. <laughs> so back to his comment to his sister that he that he, he caught the style of the illuminations of old missiles, he seems to be conscious of what you just described, not the snail's part, but the, but the labor-intensive coloration, because he says, everyone says, I've caught to perfection the right color of this biblical legend, and I'm being urged to continue this work by doing now the Holy Family in Egypt. And that, in fact, is going to be part three of what we're going to listen to today. But he does go on to tell his sister, I would be happy to do this because this subject enchants me. And when I have the documents I lack on Jesus's stay in Egypt, because he needs to do a little more research, I am writing the words as well as the music because he did that for this entire piece. And if I can bring this off, this is the score that will be ideal to dedicate to my nieces. And in fact, that's what he did to his sister's children. Aw. Isn't that sweet? Nice that's uncle. So kind of him. Yeah. See, he can do sweet. <laughs> Don't laugh. <laughs> All right. So, ready for part three? Let's do it. Yeah. Hey, can I add one more structural comment? Absolutely. I think I've said this before in other contexts, but this reminds me of that classical, and I do mean classical, structure of serious, light, and serious, or... That classical structure of dark, light, and then dark. In our 
culture, mm. we usually imagine trilogies as being light, dark, light. Like Star Wars? Yeah, or Lord of the Rings, or the Batman movies, or whatever, right? <laughs> like, our our big pop culture things are light, dark, light, as a rule. Mm. Mm-hmm. And this is a different structure, ultimately tracing descent back to how ancient Athens would perform tragedy uh, oh. at the beginning and end, and a... Uh, comic, lighthearted, dancey piece in the middle. And so, in their case, it was a a 2-1-1 structure, but all the same, where you've got this central part that is more lighthearted and often more focused on music and choreography as opposed to heavy, dramatic beats. It's a little slower. It's a bit of a palate cleanser in some extent. And you see this, of course, throughout opera, the the famous ballet in the middle of the opera. (laughs) And... (laughs) Particularly in France. <laughs> Particularly in France, and and the, and the, yeah, just that idea that okay, we're in the middle of this thing. We're gonna we're gonna do a big, often literal song and dance to move people to the next part. Yeah, I mean, not that we would call the center section of this comic, but it but it is a bit of a, a respite. Literally, the family, the holy family, at rest. Because in opera, it's uh, not always comic, right? Sometimes it's just it's just lighter, lighthearted, or again, like literal song and dance numbers that are just, uh, they pause the action a little bit. And so you often have these more serious plot-driven parts with something light in the middle. Although you can argue that's not exactly what's happening here. Mm-hmm. Because what we're seeing in this central part is the goal it's the dream it's the point of all of it is this scene of love and family bliss and something approaching heaven all of the strife in the beginning and the end of the play is hopefully ideally leading to something like this this can be seen as the heart of the play because it's in the center and it is the emotional core and it also, it's the heart because that's what grew first. Yes. The rest of it was all built to, speaking of illuminated manuscripts, right? The rest mm. of this story was built around this piece. Now, you could argue which is the illumination, which is the text, but the rest was built to illustrate this. And I think I mentioned the analogy of the triptych, this three-part picture where the central part is illustrated and given depth by the parts on the left and the right. And I think that is an apt analogy for what's happening here. Right, and very much in use for sacred subjects. Yes.
For scene one of the third part of Berlioz's L'Enfance de Christ, we are within the city walls of Saïs in Egypt, and we have a duet with Mary and Joseph, and they're in the city, and they are not at home here. They do not know a single soul here. It's this young couple with a baby, and it's distressing, and you can tell right from their voices, they are desperate. Grant, what, what's going on with these two? Well, they have arrived, but they don't have anything. They don't have a place to stay. The donkey they had with them earlier has perished along the way, and presumably all that they had has been spent to bring them here. And as I said previously, this is part of the refugee experience in many ways the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. There are certain safeguards in place here and there in our day and age, but the reality is many people who are fleeing persecution, fleeing violence, end up in countries that are not only strange to them, but also places where they do not have the tools to get by without assistance. And, and Berlioz gives these words to Mary. She's. She's afraid. She says, Joseph, I'm afraid I can go no further. I'm dying. And Joseph, trying to care for his family, knocks on door after door and says, please grant us sacred hospitality. Because after all, hospitality in this time and place is a sacred obligation. Yes. But in every time and place, there are people who are considered worthy of their rights and people who aren't. And the first and second houses they knock on belong respectively to Romans and Egyptians. Again, this is Egypt within the Roman Empire. Well, Berlioz even has the voices from behind the doors say, go away, vile Hebrews. The people of Rome have no use for vagabonds and lepers. And the same said by the Egyptians in the next bit where they also say, get away, vile Hebrews. The people of Egypt have no use for vagabonds and lepers. It's this repeated refrain that they are not welcome here. And there's an echo to the Christmas story proper mm. in which Mary and Joseph arrive poor in Bethlehem and she is about to give birth and they don't have a place to stay and they try and see where they can find lodging, and ultimately end up in that stable, as we talked about before. So yeah, these people, despite the fact that to Christians and Muslims today, they are some of the holiest people to ever have lived, are not welcomed. It seems wherever they go, whether they are in their home country because of their poverty or status, or in a foreign country because of their poverty and nationality and religion. It's heartbreaking because Mary is begging for pity from the people on the other side of the door. My feet are staining the ground with blood. My feet are bleeding. My body is dry. I can no longer even nurse my child. Joseph is, is begging for sacred hospitality. Please have pity on us, have pity. And there seems to be no pity. And Joseph is at the end of his wits. 
But he continues to try, and he says, let's try and soften their hearts, Mary. And it's heartbreaking, these two, as they are trying to save their their son, and and they, they fear he's going to die after all they have done, obeying the angel's command to go to Egypt for safety. Is it all for naught? Oh, 
This is Opera for Everyone, and we are listening to L'Enfance du Christ by Hector Berlioz, and we are in the third of three sections. Joseph and Mary have arrived in Egypt, and they're in dire straits. They are not finding sacred hospitality that they that they require. They are in bad shape. Door after door turns them away, but Grant... Do they finally find someone who takes pity on their poor state? Of course, you know how the first and second never help. We know that Jesus doesn't perish at this point. Do they find someone to help them here in Saïs? Yes. And it's not a Roman. It's not an Egyptian. It is an Ishmaelite. What's an Ishmaelite? The Ishmaelites are a people related to the Hebrews, but at some remove. There are these two children, uh, Isaac and Ishmael, and they share a father but don't share mothers. And You're talking about the way long ago Bible story. Way, 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 way long ago. Okay. And since then they've grown quite distant. The Ishmaelites are at times neutral, at times hostile, but kind of just always there in the background in the Old Testament yet recognized in some sense as being kin because they too are descended from Abraham. Abraham being the father that is shared by both Isaac and Ishmael. And it's important in the history of religion because it is from Ishmael that Islam traces its descent to Abraham and Abrahamic monotheism. And it is through Isaac that Christianity and Judaism trace their descent to Abraham and Abraham's monotheism. So there is an interesting bit of religious dialogue here. These Mm. people are not Jewish. They're not Muslim either. That would be anachronistic. But they are the people... And we'll just explain that it's anachronistic because it's way too early for anyone to be a Muslim at this point. Yes. There was no Muhammad yet. (laughs) This is hundreds of years before the birth of Muhammad. And... And yet these are these are these people who, certainly in Berlioz's time and in our own, to hear of Ishmaelites is to hear of the people who are in the line of descent that leads to this other one of the world's great religions. Right. And it is profoundly moving and touching yes. that when this Jewish couple who bear the infant Christ are unable to find anyone to take them in. It is an Ishmaelite father who says, take cheer, we will do all we can do to help you. Banish all fear. Yes, yes, our door is never closed to those in distress and they take this young couple in with their son and they feed them and they wash their wounds and they give them clothes and you know that they're going to be okay when they are brought into this family. And indeed, it turns out that the Ishmaelite father, his work is in carpentry, which is the line of work that Joseph has been trained in. And so not only do they have someone to take them in for a time, but they have someone who can work with Joseph, that he can find gainful employment, that he can assist and provide for his family, thanks to the generosity and hospitality of this family. Oh, <laughs> 
Je suis 
Part of the hospitality that the Ishmaelite father offers to Mary Joseph and their young son. He has some of his children play music for them to relax after they've been bathed and clothed and fed. And this is Berlioz's trio for two flutes and a harp. Dinner and a show. <gasps> yeah, it's their troubles have subsided for a while. Their their prayers have indeed been answered. This is Opera for Everyone, and we're nearing the end of Hector Berlioz's L'Enfance du Christ, the story of what happens shortly after the Christmas story proper ends. And we're right at the end of this story, and Mary and Joseph have been taken in by a hospitable family in Egypt 
where they've escaped the wrath of Herod and his murderous intentions, and the final scene with the father and Joseph and Mary wrapping up the hospitality that he has extended to them on this very first night. He wishes them a good night of peaceful dreams, understanding the relief that they feel in having found this hospitality. And Grant, what's in store for Mary, Joseph, and their young son while they stay here in Egypt? So they give thanks to the father. Of course, that is the father of the household, but the pun is not lost. (laughs) And they rejoice as they feel their fear and their pain falling away. And now they have a place of comfort and security in which to ply their trade and raise their young son. According to the narrator in the epilogue we're about to play, they remained in Egypt for 10 years. The historical timeline is somewhat unclear, (laughs) but, but Jesus spent some time in Egypt and until the death of Herod, and the orders of Herod would have been no longer in effect. And so he spent some time in Egypt and the narrator ponders for a moment that it was not among his own people or even among believers Mm. that Jesus finds refuge. That even when he was in Bethlehem, he was not given a cradle, but immediately the Ishmaelite father had provided him a cradle. And so I think there's something very beautiful about what Berlioz, himself an agnostic, is doing here, talking about this person who isn't a believer, who isn't in the religion as such, but who acts in the honorable and holy way. And so it's on account of this non-believer, the Ishmaelite in a foreign land, that the whole history of Jesus' life and the plan for the redemption of humanity is able to come to place. And that's what the narrator says, is that at last he was able to return to the place of his birth and redeem the human race from eternal damnation and trace the path to our salvation is what the narrator says and that is that is so powerful and so beautiful and it raises a million questions about where Berlioz is where the Ishmaelite falls into this grand plan but what we know is that in that moment of kind tenderness in that moment of holy hospitality all the strictures and all the boundaries and all the paranoias that weigh the world down fell aside And the chorus underscores it all, and they end with a big amen. 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 Well, Grant, thank you. Thank you once again for joining on Opera for Everyone to help us out with this piece. And uh, all I can say is thank you. Always a pleasure.
Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host, Pat Wright. And I'm Grant. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Opera can seem challenging, but everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. Because we believe opera Opera is is for for everyone. everyone.